Well, good morning. My name is Keith Kozik. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the honor and privilege of speaking to you today. And how about Ben Gill going off on it? That was awesome. Give him a big round of applause. That was awesome. Friday night with Stephen Curtis Chapman and then Ben Gill here. That's, that's why I'm not touching this stage this morning. It is just way too hot. That's why I'm down here. So, Hey, I am starting a series uh, that uh, me and a lot of the other pastors are going to preach on. It's called A Christmas Journey. And so I started to think about journeys in, in nature, like why do, why do we take journeys? Why do we do certain things? And so I started to think about this and pray about it for the last couple you know, weeks, and I just started to think that journeys come down to two reasons. There's journeys we want to take, and there's journeys we have to take. And so I started to think about the journeys that I want to take. Like, I love going on vacation, all right? Like, that's always a great journey. Hopefully at Christmas time, you want to go hang out with your family and with your friends. Those are a lot of the journeys that we want to take. We want to enjoy our time with people that, that we really love and we want to spend time with. And then there's the journeys we have to take. Like maybe go into that hospital because we know that something's just not right with us. Or walk into that doctor's appointment. Or that's the journey you have to take. Maybe you have to go to that funeral home or say your last goodbyes or respects to someone that you really loved and you really cared about. Or maybe right afterwards, you have to take that journey to Walmart and fight through all the lines to get all the food that you need for the week. That's a journey you have to take. And so I want to open up today with telling a little bit of journey about, you know, that I had to take and I wanted to have. And I'm sorry, a journey I had to take and a journey I wanted to take. But before we do that, let's pray. And we'll ask God's blessing. God, no one really wants to hear from me today, and I was praying about that in the back. We want to hear from you. And so, God, as, as I've prayed and I've rehearsed and I've practiced, but God, I just pray that you would fill me. Anoint my lips to say what you want to say. And, God, I just pray for my friends that are sitting out there that you would pierce their hearts. That you would teach them the things that they need to be taught. And we all would draw closer to you on this journey of life. And I pray this all in your precious name. Amen. So I want to open up with this journey of one I wanted to take and one I had to take. And I was about 17 years old. I was a teenager and I was hungry. So that was a journey I wanted to take and I had to take. I had to go get something to eat. And I was at my good friend John's house, and it was a really hot July muggy day. Uh, and so we were swimming for a while, and so, you know, after a while, you know, you get hungry. And so we were deciding, where, where do we really want to eat? And I forget the place particularly where we had picked um, that we were going to eat, but we decided that we were going to get in the car and go there. Now, being 17, you know, you're not the best driver. You don't make the best decisions, and this is going to be one of those stories. So John and I get in the car, and this is what John and I would routinely do. We'd get in the car and let's say it would take 15 minutes to, to get to a certain place. We would look at each other and go, do you think we can make it in 11 minutes? And you're like, you're all laughing because this is really stupid, all right? But when you're young and you're dumb, that's what you do. You're like, yeah, let's try to make this in 11 minutes, all right? So that's what we decided. We were going to a certain place to eat. I don't even remember where we were going to eat, um, but we were on some back roads in Meridian, and it, like I said, it was a July day, and it was one of those really, really hot July days where it rains for like 10, 15 minutes, like just pours. And it, that, it just happened. And what happens is when asphalt gets really wet for that trip, it gets really slick. Most of you know that. But me, being dumb and naive, did not know that. And so I decided, oh, we're just going to drive as fast as we can. 
And so that's what we did. We get in the car. I forget, like I said, I don't remember, recall exactly where we're driving. And we were speeding. And I'm behind the wheel. And I have the wheel. And somewhere in my head, I am Dale Earnhardt or Al Unser Jr. I'm like taking the turns. And John's like, man, like, that was a good turn. You know what I mean? And we're going. We're flying and stuff like that. And we're in these back roads and Meridian. And we came up on this S-bend. And it, it bends this way. And then it kind of bends back that way. And I made the first bend all right. And then I started to line up for the second bend. And I was like, oh, my goodness. I am in big trouble. And I, so I start to panic. I'm like, so I start kind of pedaling the wheel, just like trying to figure it out. And my car is a standard, so I try to downshift it to try to cut as much momentum as I can. I'm trying to do anything I can. I'm like, oh, no, I'm, I, this is not going to be not going to be good. And so what I do is I hit the brakes, and without wet asphalt, I slide off the road. Now, I don't just slide like five feet off the road. No, I slide like 15, 20 feet off the road, and we are way off the road. He looks at me and goes, nice drive. And I was like, ah, you were the one arguing me on. We're trying to get there. And so I'm way off the road, and I'm trying to figure out what am I going to do. And the voice of my father's reigning in my head about driving safe and doing the right things. And I'm like, oh, no, this is really dumb. What am I going to do? So I do the absolute dumbest thing possible. I was like, I'm just going to put it in reverse and floor it and get out of here. So I put it in reverse. Many of you are laughing because you're like, you're a moron. You know what I mean? So I hit reverse, and what happens? All the just leaves and loose dirt just go all over my car. I was like, well, maybe if I cut the wheel left and right. So I start doing it. And it's just blowing dirt everywhere, and my car is just sinking further and further. And so is internally. I'm sinking further and further. I'm like, oh, I'm in big trouble. So I look at my friend John. I'm like, all right, listen. You drive and I'll push. You know what I mean? So like somehow I'm going to become the Incredible Hulk and go push this car like right out of this, this pit that I've just made. And I'm pushing. I'm pushing. We're going nowhere and I am just stuck. And I'm like, oh no, what am I going to do? This is terrible. Like I'm going to get caught. My dad's going to yell at me. I'm like, oh, this is, oh, I'm so frustrated. Because once you get stuck, then it starts to turn to what? The hopelessness. And it's like, I just, I've tried everything on my behalf to try to make this happen, and it just doesn't work. Some of you feel that way right now. You feel stuck. You feel stuck in your past. You feel stuck with the decisions that you made. Maybe you're stuck in a job. Maybe you're stuck with a terrible boss. I love it when he's here because that's just. But you're, you're trying so hard to get out. And you feel what? You feel hopeless. Because we feel hopeless because when we do everything on our own power to try to make something happen like I did with my car. There's just some things you can't get out of. You're stuck in. And I want to make you understand that about 2,020 years ago, that's exactly where the Israelites were. They were stuck. They were in a bad place. They were stuck under this regime that just wasn't good. So I want to tell you a little bit about where the Israelites were and the Jews were, and they were stuck in their past. They were, they were stuck with some issues. And it's called the 400 silent years is where I want to pick up at. And this is the time in between the New Testament and the Old Testament. There's a 400-year gap. And during these 400 years, God doesn't speak to his people at all. No prophets, no words of God, no nothing. For 400 years, they don't hear the voice of God. Just to give you an approximation here, that's, you know, the average lifespan of a Jew at that time was anywhere from 40 to 45 years. 
You're talking eight to ten generations that have not heard the voice of God distinctly. Think about that. They had heard rumors of their God parting the Red Sea and David lay, you know, slaying giants. They've, they've heard all these things, and they've heard these rumors of this Messiah showing up, but they don't see any of it. And they want to, but they're just kind of stuck, and they're starting to feel hopeless, like, what's really going to happen? The Jews also have this major problem, too. They're under the Roman reign. And the Romans, as most of you know, they're not exactly the easiest people to get along with. Well, anybody that's conquered you is not exactly the easiest people to get along with. But they're what? They're very immoral people. Their sexual lives were deplorable. They're also, the way that they treated their, their conquered people, most of them were forced into labor and to do things that they didn't really want to do. And many of the Jews were stuck doing things that they didn't really want to do. And lastly, the big thing that they have is they have this ruler over them named Herod, who he called himself the king of the Jews. Now, Herod himself was half Jewish, so it's half true. And the Roman Senate had proclaimed that he was the king of the Jews. But we know that Herod is just not a great guy. We know Herod and Matthew, what? He, he destroys and murders you know, all the Jewish boys under two and under because they heard that there was another king of the Jews born. And so he wanted to murder all the, the Jewish boys so that no one would take his reign. But that wasn't like the only people that he murdered. Herod was a paranoid tyrant that murdered tons and tons of people. Let me give you a little bit of the list of the people that he murdered. First of all, he murdered his brother-in-law, Aristobulus. Aristobulus was actually the chief priest at that time. And by all counts, was a pretty good guy. So much of a good guy that he was jealous, that Herod was jealous, that what happened was is the people really liked Aristobulus more than they liked him. And so he was jealous of that. So he had his brother-in-law drowned. He had his wife, his favorite wife was Mariamay. But he always thought that she was cheating on him. So what he did was he had her killed as well, had her murdered. He also had his other wife, Alexandra, murdered as well for infidelity reasons. And so you have to understand, this guy is murdering people closest to him, his own wives. And then he starts murdering his own sons. Now, there were times where you probably want to murder your own kids. I've thought about it once or twice, just once or twice. <laughs> but he's actually acting on it because he's afraid that what? That they are threats to his thrones. So his son, Alexandria, Aristobulus, and Antipater, he has all three of his, three of his many sons murdered. Roman Caesar Augustus would say this about him. He would say this, is that Roman Emperor Augustus once joked, it's better to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his sons. Because obviously he's Jewish. He's not going to eat the pigs, but he's murdering his own son. He's not going to have them killed. That was, the, that was what he was known as in this Roman age. This is what Herod is known for. Last thing about Herod that makes him a, you know, a tyrant, one of the things about people he murdered, was that he knew that whenever he died, no one was really going to care because of how terrible he, he treated the people. So what he did was he ordered many of the Jewish nobles, many of their people in political power. He wanted them to be arrested on, close to his death so that they would be put to death so that there would be mourning in the land whenever he dies. And so that's what happened. That was his last act as, as king of the Jews is that when he dies, he puts to death hundreds of Jewish nobles so that there would be mourning in the land. Put yourself... And in Israelite shoes, 2,020 years ago, this is the ruler. What kind of hope do you have? You're stuck with this guy. Not only are you stuck with him, he taxes you pretty heavily. 
That's why the Romans really like him. They like him because he's taxing them. But with the tax money, he's giving some to Rome, but he's also building all these things. Herod was a prolific builder. Let me show you some of the things that he builds. The first thing that he builds is Samaria. And this is, again, these places still stand today, which he would rename Sebast. Sebast is a city that was named after Emperor Augustus because he's trying to gain Augustus' favor. So he builds this. The next thing he builds is this, is Caesarea Maritima. Caesarea Maritima is a port city. It's a beautiful city. As you can see, it's still, part of it still stands today. And Caesarea Maritima was more of a Roman city. So there's a lot of immoral things going on there, filthy, filthy things going on. And then he builds these palaces slash fortresses. He's taxing the people, forcing them into labor, and having them build all these buildings. And so if there was ever a coup against them, because he knew the people hated him, he could retreat to one of these three fortresses, and they were all in different directions, just in case something bad happened. The first one is Antonia, and the second one is Herodian, go ahead, which is up obviously on a hillside, and the third one is the Coup de Gras. It's Masada, which is still there today, and many, many, many people have visited this. Imagine the man hours it would have taken, the money, the tax hours, the forced labor to build these fortresses so that his palace could live for forever and his kingdom could live. That's what he wanted. Last interesting fact about, you know, Herod that I want to let you know. Guess who the biggest supporters of Herod were for years and years and years? The Pharisees. And, and whenever I read this, it was very interesting, but it made sense. Is the Pharisees are trying to, what, the religious leaders at that time, trying to protect what they have, trying to protect their power and their kingdom. And Herod is the exact same way. So you have this team of people really teamed together, not for the good of the people, but for their own interest, so that they can maintain what they have. In light of everything that I've just told you, the Roman oppression, the stock, the Jews, how they would have felt, I want to read some verses for you that you've probably heard before from the scrolls of Isaiah. And they go like this. It says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Because the Jews, they, they wanted this Messiah to come to what rescue them because they're stuck, they're hopeless. And they would read these, rolls, these scrolls from Isaiah and go, Man, if we just had someone to run our government, it would be a million times better. Because we're stuck. we got no hope. And like, we're going to get a Messiah, and the government's going to be on his shoulders. So guess what? We're not going to be under this oppression anymore. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And I've read this hundreds of times. And maybe you've read this hundreds of times. But do you know what these actually mean? They're fascinating to me. The first one is this wonderful counselor. It's someone that's all wise and all knowledgeable and always makes the right decision. That's what the, the Messiah was going to be. That's what the leader was of, the, of the king of the Jews was going to be for these Israelites. That's what they wanted. He's going to be a mighty God, the military leader that's going to fight for the rights of the people. He's going to protect them because they had no one fighting for them. They could have been killed by the Romans at any point, whenever they wanted to kill them. An everlasting father, a father filled with love and compassion and discipline his children and love his children. And the last one is going to be prince of peace. He's going to reign with peace all over the land. And his peace is going to be so great that it's going to permeate the other nations. 
When you read those four things, you go, oh my goodness, Herod had none of those things. He didn't. This is exactly, they would read this and go, this is what we are hoping for, that this somehow happens. It's amazing whenever I read them and I, and I studied those things, I was like, that's exactly the type of government that I want to be under. And when you think about it, the liberals, the Democrats, the Republicans, the independents, this is what we all fight for. We think that the government should be these four things. It's like God knew what he was doing when he made government. But they would read these things and go, oh, this is exactly what I want to be a part of. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Because in the Old Testament, the Israelites don't have a lot of peace, do they? For what happens, they do what God wants for a while, things go well, and then what happens? They fall away and do their own thing, and then they start doing bad things, and they humble themselves, and God, please come back to us, come back to us. And then God comes back to them, things go well, and then they fall away, and then, and then they you know, do, start doing the bad things again. This is the Old Testament in a nutshell. It's just a roller coaster, up and down, and up and down, and up and down. And there's what? Very, very, very little peace. And when there's very little peace, there's very little hope. And so they're reading these scrolls of Isaiah going, this is exactly what I want. This is exactly what I'm looking for. And he will reign on David's throne and, and over his kingdom and establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness. Justice. He's going to do the right things no matter what. It's going to be righteous. He's going to do the right things no matter what. This is the type of government that they're looking for. This is the type of government that we're all looking for. And he'll be on David's throne because he had to be in the Davidic lineage, it's called. He had to be one of David's descendants. That's what it had to be, was they wanted a king in that line. Because David was really the most successful king in the Old Testament. He was the greatest king that they'd ever seen. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The passion, I love this, replace zeal with passion. The passion of the Lord God Almighty will accomplish this. Not by man's own strength, by man's own will, not by their own vision, no. But by the passion of, of the God is this going to take place. Isaiah 11, 1 says this, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Again, referencing back to David's, again, the David's throne. And from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And so we read these and we get a misconception because in this day and age, we all have access to the Holy Spirit. We're on this side of the cross, and so we can have the Holy Spirit. You can have the Holy Spirit in your life. But in the Old Testament, only certain people have the Holy Spirit for certain reasons and for certain times. And so they would have wanted a Messiah. They would have wanted a king. They would have wanted the government where the Spirit of God was on this leader because he would then guide them and direct them in the right way. Isaiah 3 says this, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide what he hears with his ears. But with the righteous, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give the decisions for the poor of the earth. He is going to look out for the poor, the stuck, the people not in good places. Not just for the righteous, or not just for the rich and the people that are in power. No, no, no. This government, this Messiah is going to look out for everyone. He's going to look out for you and for me. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. When I read these verses, it gives me hope. It does. It's like, wow, this is exactly the type of government that I would want to be a part of. This is the reign that I want to put myself under. 
is this is what God is going to do when this Messiah comes. And the Jews are reading this and go, this is what we want. We want this so bad. And this is why also the Jews miss it, and they still miss it today, because they're waiting for a Messiah to come and establish this here on earth. And this is actually what God establishes in heaven. It's a heavenly kingdom. That's why Jesus comes, to get us unstuck and to provide hope in our lives. It's not an earthly kingdom. It's a heavenly kingdom. Let me give you, let me pick up back up my story, and then I can try to analogize this a little bit better. Last time I I left you, I was 20 feet off the road in a ditch that I had made, all right, feeling completely hopeless. And I was spinning and spinning and spinning. John and I decided, okay, I don't know what we're going to do, but we got to get out of here. So I I get him, you know, so him and I, we kind of tie up our shoes and we're like, we got to run back to our friend's house or something. We got to run back to your house. We got to get unstuck. This is terrible. And so right as we're getting everything packed up and decide we're going to go for this run and we're like, we got, you know, let's just go back this way, you know, we'll just see what happens. At the front of the S-Bend, I look up, and I hear just this rumbling, like, and I look, and there is this huge black Jeep with tires, I swear, like this big, all right? And it had a lift kit, I swear, that was this big, all right? It was like Bigfoot itself, all right? And it just comes rumbling down the road, it makes the S-Bend perfect because it's not going too fast. And he comes up to me, and my friend John, who 20 feet off the road, he's like, are you guys stuck? <laughs> I was like, we are very, very stuck. He's like, would you guys like some help? And I'm like, we would love some help. And most importantly, what he has on the front of his Jeep, a power winch, you know, with like a power with a metal cable. So I take the power winch and I hook it up to my car. I tie it up. We're good to go. He's like, put your car in neutral, and that's exactly what I do. And he drags me right out. Hallelujah, I am saved. My dad will never know. (laughs) Folks, that's the same thing that Jesus does to us, isn't it? We're stuck. We got no hope. You're going to feel that at some point in your life. And the right person comes along like Jesus, and he pulls you right out. He says, listen, I'll, I'll give you hope. The most important thing you can do is what I did with my car, which was what? Put it in neutral. Just let me take care of it. i got to take my hands off and go, all right, that's, that's what he did. And he, and he drags me right out. This is where the Jews are. This is where they are 2,020 years ago. They're stuck. And this Jesus is going to show up on the scene and get them unstuck and give them hope. So how is Jesus going to start implementing this plan? Is he going to go to the leaders? He's going to, you know, to do this or do all these fancy things? No, no, no. He's going to start his plan by going to a 14 or 15-year-old teenage girl. Sends an angel to her that says this in Luke 1, 26. It says, in the six months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, to a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Very important, again, for the David lineage. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you, are, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Imagine if God showed up and said, Hey, greetings to you, you are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Wouldn't that make you feel confident? Like, wow, God is with me? This is incredible. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what the, the kind of greeting might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And again, this angel keeps her, You have found God's favor. You have hope. You can trust me. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus. 
He will be great and will be, the, and be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over J- Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. No one's going to be stuck anymore. It's going to be great. You're going to have hope. Everyone's going to have hope. To which Mary replied, how will this be? I know where babies come from. I'm a virgin. Like, that's impossible. How could I give birth? That's impossible. Verse 35, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born to you will be called the Son of God. You're going to give birth. You're 14 or 15 years old. You're pledged to be married to someone. There's a lot of reasons where you go, wait, I don't think this is such a good idea, God. I, I, I I don't know about this. But she doesn't feel that way. And I don't know about you, but again, as I get older, I'm, you know, 39 years old. If I had a daughter that was 14 or 15 years old and she told me that she was pregnant and that the Holy Spirit had put it there, I'd want to meet this Holy Spirit, you know, and take care of that. (laughs) I'd be like, well, I don't think this is such a good idea. Don't you know who this daughter is? The ridicule and persecution this woman would have endured is really amazing. Mary's a very heroic person. Even Elizabeth, verse 36, and your relative is going to have a child in her old age. And, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Verse 38, Mary replied, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be to me fulfilled. Then the angel left her. And what did she say? What did she say? I'm the Lord's servant, whatever you want. She's excited. Why? Because she gets to be part of the plan. She's heard about this Messiah. She's heard about this is going to come us. And she's like, I get to be a part of the plan. I get to be the part of bringing hope to other people. I get to be part of the plan to help getting people unstuck in their journeys in life. That's awesome. I'm, that's incredible. Like, I'm the Lord's servant, whatever you want. In fact, she writes a song about this, which is pretty amazing. This is verse 47 and verse 48. It says, this is, and Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Like she gets it, I'm, co- I'm carrying my Savior. How crazy is that? For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, generations will call me blessed. She gets it like, I'm gonna be blessing to other people and other people are gonna be gonna say, what an amazing person. We still talk about this woman today because she was a blessing to other people. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down the rulers from their thrones, but has lifted high the humble. He has fulfilled the hungry with good things, but has sent away rich, oh, sorry, sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful. To Abraham and descendants forever, just as he promised to our ancestors. She's like, I get to be part of the plan. I get to be part of this Messiah plan that brings hope to people. Here's the amazing thing you get to be part of the plan. You get to give hope to people that don't have hope. There's a lot of people in this world that I told you, they're stuck in their past, with their shame, with their bad boss. They're stuck. (laughs) I love you. 
And we get to be part of the plan that goes to people and say, listen, I know this doesn't look good, but I have a hope for you. And it's called Jesus Christ. And you may feel stuck now because you're relying on yourself to get yourself out of all these situations. That's never going to happen. But I have a God that can pull you out of any any situation and give you hope and peace and joy. And let me tell you something, folks. That is the absolute best Christmas present that you could give someone this, this holiday season. It is. You could give hope to someone. Because there's a lot of you here that are probably in the first person, you know, the first people I talked about. You may be stuck. You may be stuck in that relationship where they're just not working out how you wanted it to. Stuck in your past. Stuck in an addiction. And just like that guy with the Jeep pulled me out, Jesus wants to pull you out of that addiction or that whatever is holding you down, wherever you're stuck in, and he wants to give you hope. If Jesus has pulled you out of that, then you get to be the agent of hope for other people. Go give that hope away to someone else. Go be a blessing and get people unstuck. I want to close with one final story, and it's kind of trivial, but I think you'll understand it. Most of you know this if you've heard me talk before. I'm a really big Pittsburgh Penguin fan. I really do. I love the Penguins. I've been a Penguin fan for a long time. And I want to tell you a story about the 2003-2004 Pittsburgh Penguins. They were the absolute worst team in hockey. (laughs) They were so bad. They played 82 games, and they only won 23 of them. Of those 82 games, I want to let you know, I probably watched about 75 of them, all right, which my blood pressure would raise, and I would get frustrated, like, oh, come on, you guys stink. Like, I would yell it. They one time lost 17 games in a row. That is really difficult to do, to lose 17 games in a row. But they did it. Oh, they did it, all right? And I watched them do that, all right? In fact... They had players such as Rico Fata and Ramsey Abed. You've never probably heard of either of those guys. They sound more like soccer players, don't they, than hockey players. Like, hockey players normally have, like, cool names. They don't even have cool names. The next one is the most amazing part of all. This is Kelly Bookberger, all right? You might have heard of him if you're a pretty big hockey fan. He played for the Oilers. He actually won a Stanley Cup. But Kelly Bookberger did something that was so incredible for the 2003-2004 Penguins that it's, it's still unfathomable to this day. He played, the season started in September. It took him six months, six months. And for the first 10 games, he played with Mario Lemieux until he got hurt. But it took him six months to even record a point in a game. That means to get an assist or score a goal. He didn't do any of that. That's how bad of a player he was, is that he couldn't make a decent pass to someone who could make a good pass who could eventually score. He went six months without recording a point, and he played offense. (laughs) That's how bad he was, and I watched him play. The Penguins were pretty hopeless, guys. And then the 2004-2005 season came or actually, it didn't come because there was a lockout. There was a cancellation. They canceled the entire season. And when they canceled the entire season, they had a lottery. And a ping pong ball bounced the right way. And then this happened. We got this guy named Sid. And I can remember the day we won the lottery. I was like a kid at Christmas. I was like, we got Sid! We got Sid! No one knew who he was. And I was like, we got the greatest. Like, we got the future. This is incredible. We're, we're going to be so great. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? They're terrible. I'm like, no, we got Sid. We got Sidney Crosby. It's going to be amazing. 
And I went from what? Being stuck with no hope to what? Hope. And I'm telling everyone, like, we're going to get Sidney Crosby. My kids are like, okay, that's great. Chill out. You know what I mean? <laughs> and four years later, what happens? We're Stanley Cup champions. Did I have any role in that? Nope. <laughs> I was just there for the ride. Did I love it? Yeah, but I went from being hopeless to hopeful to be like, woohoo, we're Stanley Cup champions. This is incredible. And I tell you that because it's trivial, but here's the better thing that can even happen. It can happen in your own personal life. It can. You can go from being stuck to no hope to having reason, to having lots of hope, to telling other people about the hope that you have. If you're a Steeler fan, you're hoping for a guy named Duck today. Whoever thought that would happen? <laughs> but that's what hope is. And you can have real internal hope given from our Lord and Savior, and then you can give that hope to other people. I want you guys to bow your heads, and I'm going to pray. God, you're the only hope for any of us in this room. If we could fix ourselves, if we could change ourselves, we wouldn't need you. But we can't. And it's prideful and it's, it's egotistical like that we try to make things happen instead of just surrendering over to you. So I want to pray for you if you're here today and you feel stuck and you feel hopeless and you, maybe this, this spark, the heart, you know, this hope in your heart, like I, I, I want that. It's real simple. You just got to put it in neutral and let go and say, God, I, I trust you. And I want what you want for my life. Doesn't mean you're going to get unstuck immediately. Doesn't mean life's going to be rosy and peachy all the time. But no, you'll have hope and you'll have peace. And it only comes from him. Maybe you're another person here and you have that hope. You have that peace. Who do you need to share that with this holiday season? Who's the person that you can think of, God, put that on someone's heart right now, that this person just doesn't have peace, they don't have any hope, and I need to share that with them this holiday season. It may be inviting them back to, to the sermon in this series, or maybe inviting them to Christmas, or maybe just having a conversation with them. And so if that's you today, just, just receive what God has for you. And maybe placing someone on your heart right now, God, give them the courage to go talk to them. God, help us to go leave here and take our journeys wherever it takes us, even if it does take us to Walmart, and let us to be hope to people in a hopeless world. And we pray this all in your mighty and strong name. Amen. Have a blessed day. Be full of hope. And we'll see you guys next week. God bless.